Check one, two. Check one, two. and sing praises unto the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. recovery guys yeah we didn't start on the first slide <laughs> oh my first John 513 you don't want to organize if you want to organize religion you don't want it you're at the right place um, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life amen let's pray together father we're so thankful that we can come together this morning and worship you and father we thank you for the blessings we have and Lord most of all we thank you for the eternal life that we can have through your son, Jesus. And Father, I pray that we live life with that joy and that peace. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Good, morning. good to see you today. We're glad that you've chosen to come worship with us today as we lift up the Lord Jesus Christ together. Amen. Amen. All right. This morning, make sure you fill out your connection card for us. For those who are watching online, we ask that you do the same. And we're going to continue lifting up the Lord in song together today. You may be seated. Amen. 
I was supposed to speak before. Um, so for those of you who don't know me, hi, I'm Claire. I'm Lee and Luella's granddaughter. And uh, I've been gone for four years, been at Bible college, and uh, graduated, hallelujah. And I just wanna say, <laughs> I just wanted to thank you guys so much for all of your support, your prayers, your cards, uh, your thoughts, and your monetary um, contributions, thank you. Um, and please continue them as I start my second year of teaching second grade at a Bible school in Idaho. So, thank you. I just feel like something good is about to happen. I just feel like something good is on its way. He has promised that he'd open all of heaven. And brother, it could happen any day. When God's people humble themselves to call on Jesus. And they look to heaven expecting as they pray. I just feel like something good is about to happen And brother, this could be that very day I have learned in all that happens just to praise Him For I know He's working all things for my good Every tear I shed is worth all the investment For I know He'll see me through, He said He would I know rear can hardly fathom all the things he has in store for those who pray. I just feel like something good is about to happen, and brother, this could be that very day. I just feel like something good is about to happen. I just feel like something good is on its way. He has promised that he'd open all of heaven. And brother, it could happen any day. When God's people humble themselves to call on Jesus. And they look to heaven expecting as they pray. I just feel like something good is about to happen. And brother, this could be that very day. Yes, I've noticed all the bad news in the paper And it seems like things get bleaker every day But for this child of God it makes no difference Because it's bound to get better anyway I've never been more thrilled about tomorrow Sunshine's always bursting through the skies of gray I just feel like something good is about to happen. I just feel like something good is on its way. He has promised that he'd open all of heaven. And brother, it could happen any day. When God's people humble themselves who call on Jesus. And they look to heaven expecting as they pray. That was exciting. <laughs> that was great. Good job. And I'm thinking up there, they, they must be thinking about, talking about the sermon that's coming up. I'm like, I'm like, wow, that's, that's quite a, that's better than a drum roll. 
Oh, it's good to have Claire Bear back home, by the way. You're making your mom and dad pay for a bunch of stuff while you're home, right? <laughs> Are you one of those type of people that, um, that sets goals and makes plans for your life? Or do you just kind of fly by the seat of your pants? Just kind of like go through life oblivious. What happens, happens. Que sera, sera. I've seen many people that live their life that way, that they go to college, and they have really no end goal other than to, well, let's put it this way, party and sometime graduate and spend as much of their parents' money as they can. Um, but they hope at some point they want to graduate, but they go in, they really don't know what they're wanting to do. And as a result of not really having a career goal, an educational goal, a lot of them drop out eventually with a lot of debt. Or the other thing that happens is they end up being in school forever because they can't figure out what they want to do with their life, and um, which results in more debt, and it results in a lot of wasted time of their life. Sometimes it's easy to forget why we do what we do in life. Why am I married? See, if you forget that one, you're going to lose half your stuff eventually, and your kids are going to be in bad shape. The person we married and wanted to spend the rest of our lives with, if they just become just simply a roommate, then little things start to tear down the relationship. And so when we forget why we married the person that we married, what ends up happening is life becomes a mess. Why do we have a job? Well, ideally, we have a job um, to provide a living for our family. And at some point in our, in our life, though, if our job becomes our life, we, if we forget about our family... See what happens? Your family suffers. If we're not, too care if we're not careful, we end up forgetting do why we do what we do. This can happen in church, and it can happen in our personal lives and our personal faith also. Why do you come to church? Why do you read the Bible? Why do you pray? When you lose sight of your goal, these things become mundane tasks instead of life-changing experiences. When you don't understand why you're doing what you're doing, if you don't have a goal set before you, all the wonderful things that God calls us to do, they just become burdensome because we don't get it. One of the things when I went to college, uh, I, I, when I was at, when I working for Square D Company, I would go to college part-time because they paid for my education. And, and I had a really good job. I was working 40 to 60 hour weeks going to school part-time. And um, at that time, I was, wanted to go into electrical engineering and uh, I took a Fortran class. Roger, you probably remember that one. And that, uh, by then it was antiquated, and I had a bad, teach, a bad TA, he didn't show up for the first class, and the next day he comes in and he says, little, uh, I think he's a little Chinese gentleman, and he's like, uh, you have 10 programs due tomorrow, and I'm like, uh, I have no idea what I'm doing. So anyway, that ruined my electrical engineering career. And then I decided, you know, I wanted to go into business and all kinds of different things, but when I wanted to go to Bible college, when I felt God's call to ministry, when I went to college, I was, uh, what, 33 at the time, I think? can't remember. Yeah, that's about right. But I think it was about 30, 30 no, I was 30 at the time. Sorry, I was 30. And when I was in class, except when I was exhausted, and, I, and the t t teachers knew my schedule, I was going to school full-time, working full-time, sometimes six days a week, sometimes seven, and they knew what my schedule was. But the point was, when I was in class, I knew why I was there. I understood why I was taking this, this, this class in psychology. I understood why I was taking this marriage counseling class. I understood why I was studying the book of Acts, why I was studying the book of John, why I was studying the Gospels. And so I paid attention. And it broke my heart when I saw a lot of the youngsters in there playing games on their computers. You know, really not paying attention. And so when you... So for me, I enjoyed school. I didn't like being tired all the time, necessarily. <clears throat> but I enjoyed it because I knew why I was there. I had a goal. Make sense? Well, at church, we have to ask ourselves, when it comes to teaching, what is the goal of our teaching? Why do we teach what we teach? Are we simply through sermons and Bible studies and <clears throat> small groups, are we simply trying to just transfer information and knowledge to people? Or are we seeking transformation of people? Because, see, if your goal is just to impart knowledge, we can do that in a very academic way, very dry way, and people are going to learn things, but to what end? So we have to ask ourselves, why are we teaching what we teach? See, my hope is that we're not just teaching to give you information, 
but we're teaching to help transform your life. Paul is writing to Timothy, the young evangelist Timothy, in the passage we're going to be looking at this morning. And what was happening during this time, there were people out there promoting false doctrine, false teachings within the church. And so what was happening, though, and what was causing some of this is people were losing sight of what was important. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me before we dive right direct, you know, into the, the place that we're actually going to be. What happened here? There we go. I urge you, when I, was, when, when I was leaving for Macedonia, to stay on in Ephesus to instruct certain people not to spread false teaching, nor to com- occupy themselves with myths and inter... I can't get the word out. Genealogies, such things promote useless speculations rather than God's redemptive plan that operates by faith. And so what was happening is these teachers were coming in and they were trying to get people's focus off what was important, what was important about the Christian life. And they were trying to get them to argue about endless speculations. We kind of do this in the church today, particularly when we start jumping into Revelation. People get into all these mindless arguments and discussions about some of the stuff that they don't understand. They act like they know, but they don't. And then they just keep going and going and going and going. And so these teachers, what they were doing is they were trying to get people hung up on stuff that wasn't important. They were taking their eye off the prize. As Paul contrasts the false teachers with the real ones, Paul explains that the aim or the goal of God's teaching is love. And we're going to focus on verse 5 of most of the sermon this morning. Because this passage talks about the aim, the goal of our instruction, speaking of what Paul taught. He explains that love is is the proper and expected lifestyle of the one who calls themselves by the name of Jesus who follows Jesus. As Christ's followers, that is what it's about. The teaching, the teaching, the things that we teach, the things that Paul was imparting, the aim or the goal or the end result was to help get somebody to that point. Not to just stuff their head with knowledge, not to get them where they can argue silly things that aren't really important, but instead to get them to understand what love was about. Contrast that to what the false teachers are doing. They were trying to drag people off that goal and get them to put their aim on things that were not important. Real love is doing what is spiritually best for other people. And by the way, that kind of love is not dependent on the object of the love. It's entirely reliant on the lover themselves. It doesn't matter the object, it matters the person. In other words, this kind of love is a matter of the will. This kind of love will happen when we will ourselves to do it when we will ourselves and say, you know, no matter what the object I'm trying to love does, here's what I'm going to do. No matter what they do to me, here's how I'm going to respond. Sometimes if we think we have the right doctrinal stand on things, if we have the right doctrinal stand, but we can't love those around us, there's something wrong. We've missed the mark. Yeah, we know the stuff, but when we lose sight of our goal, we'll go off the path and lose sight of why we're here. The study this morning we're going to be going through will focus mainly on verse 5. And so that's what I want us to be focusing on this morning. In this passage, Paul clearly lays out three goals as to why we teach what we teach. In verses 6 and 7, when we look at it, it will show a bad result that happens when we don't focus in on that goal. So let's look at verse 5 to see the type of love we are to aim for. And here's what Paul says. That's Paul calling right now. But the aim of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So for you note takers, this will be a pretty easy one for you to fill out. The first part of this is he says the aim of our instruction is love, is love that comes from where? First of all, a pure heart. It comes from a pure heart. Those trying to introduce false teachings in the mix were trying to get folks to focus on external <clears throat> or ceremonial purity instead of what was truly important. By the way, it doesn't, it's not always an issue of false teachers that do this. It's losing sight of the heart behind what we're teaching. You can teach technically to correct doctrinal truth, but when your heart behind it is wrong, you're not teaching truth. The Pharisees of Jesus' day, boy, they look good on the outside. We kind of pick on them because they're a pretty easy target. But internally, they were a mess, and Jesus knew this. 
He said this, blind Pharisee, first clean out the inside of the cup so the outside may be clean too. And in that whole speech, basically, to the Pharisees, he's comparing them, saying, man, you look great on the outside, but boy, your heart's a mess. And you know, they taught a lot of things that weren't proper because they were mixing men's traditions, but boy, they knew the law of Moses. And they taught that law of Moses, but the problem was they did not teach it from a, from a, from a, from a pure heart. They did not teach it from a pure heart. What they did is they were imparting knowledge. They were using their knowledge bases to say, look, I'm better than you. And they were trying to run down everybody else and look down upon everybody else. So yeah, they taught truth per se, but they really didn't. See, a pure heart is the ground from which love must flow. In the Bible, the heart represents a person's mind, thoughts, uh, and moral affections. So what is a pure heart? The word pure originally meant, and kind of still does, it means to be clean as opposed to soiled and dirty. Later the word became, uh, the, the, later the word pure came to have some more certain suggestive uses. The word pure was used of corn that had been winnowed and cleaned of all the chaff. The term was used of an army that had purified all the uncowardly, or excuse me, all the cowardly and undisciplined soldiers until the only people that were left were the first class, the best of the best. The term was applied to something which was without any inferior things or anything added to the mix. So when it talks about that pure heart, that's what it's looking for. The pure heart is what motivates, the motivations, excuse me, that come from that pure heart are absolutely pure. They are unmixed. They don't have an agenda. They're not trying to say, you know what, I'm gonna buddy up to this person for this or that reason. I'm gonna befriend you because of this. I'm gonna teach you, no, we have pure, <clears throat> pure motives. I told you this before, my son-in-law served in a church where the elders told him to go into the rich community and start evangelizing instead of evangelizing to the people who weren't so wealthy. Now, I don't know about you, it's not really my job to judge, but that doesn't look very pure, does it? You know, if somebody walks in the building and they pulled up in a Lamborghini and they're dressed to the nines and we just bow down and worship them, and then somebody comes from our ditch over here, which has happened, and we're like, Ugh. is that love from a pure heart? No, it's not. It isn't, see? It's one of the things I love about this church. We'll welcome both folks. I love that. But the heart of the Christian is, in the heart of, a, of the Christian, there's no desire to show how clever we are. There's no desire to just try to show our debating skills try to make other people look ignorant. Our goal, when we have that love from a pure heart, is to simply illuminate and try to lead people nearer to God. The Christian is only motivated by their love of the truth, their love for God, and their love for others. A pure heart is one whose motives and affections are noble and unselfish. You're not doing it to gain. You're doing it for God. You're doing it because you want to be the, a blessing to the other person. We can go to God to have a pure heart. If our hearts aren't pure, we can go to him. Psalm 51.10, a very popular psalm, says, Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a resolute spirit within me. <clears throat> a pure heart will allow us to love even when we receive nothing in return. That's easy, isn't it? You ever love somebody or something, you got nothing back? It's a good feeling, isn't it? hard but see when you have that pure heart you love for love's sake even if you don't like always what's going around you still love let's go back to verse five again why is my stuff jumping around weird been one of those mornings but the aim of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart a good conscience and a sincere faith so the second observation is that the second grounding for our love is love from a good conscience. Now, a good conscience is another area from which this love must flow. Now, what is a conscience? Technically, it's that innate or that inborn faculty that promotes one, that prompts one to do what they think is right and criticize them when they do what their mind thinks is wrong. It's that little voice that says, yeah, good job, or that little voice that says, you shouldn't have done that. And most most people have, the sociopaths don't, but most people have a conscience. And when our standard for right is violated, our conscience produces guilt, shame, 
fear, doubt, remorse, and despair. Isn't it amazing that God built us with that? I wonder why. Some people do good things just because of a guilty conscience. And their guilty conscience drives them to do good things. But doing good's not the norm for them. In other words, they feel bad enough about something, they'll do something. Loving the hard to love is not something they would normally do because it's just not in their nature. But sometimes your guilt gets you to say, yeah, you really ought to love that person. Okay, I guess I will. Timothy was told that God desires Christians to live a lifestyle that does not result from a guilty conscience. In other words, our motive for love should not be a guilty conscience. Our motive for doing what we do for others and for God shouldn't be grounded in a guilty conscience. And believe me, I think there's a lot of people that operate in that mode. They operate from guilt and shame. See, a blameless conscience, a pure conscience, a clean conscience, a good one, is a conscience that's free of offense against God and against other people. The devil can't accuse you because there's nothing to accuse you of. A good conscience produces peace, confidence, joy, hope, courage, and contentment. And that's one of the ground, places our love has to be grounded. If you're not experiencing these things in your life, and you're ex- instead living off guilt, shame, doubt, then maybe God's trying to get your attention to say, you know, you need to make a change. Maybe there's something in your life that is giving you guilt. So you need to deal with it. Uh, sometimes we have guilt from the past. Well, that stuff, there's really not an excuse for that because God says, I take that from you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. When we're immersed in Jesus, we are given a good conscience. When we see 1 Peter, it tells us this. And speaking, he was speaking of Noah and what happened there. He says, after they were disobedient long ago when God patiently waited in the days of Noah as an ark was being constructed, in the ark a few, that is, eight souls, were delivered through the water. And this prefigured baptism, which now saves you, not the washing off of physical dirt, but a pledge of a good conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The other thing about a conscience is it can be trained. We learn this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 through 12. Uh, it can be calloused. It can be hardened over time. <clears throat> in other words, when your conscience keeps telling you, Quit, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, and you keep saying, I'm going to do it, 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 eventually your conscience can be seared. Um, so that's why we don't want to be continually ignoring that conscience. See, some folks don't want to listen to God. They don't want to change their life. They ignore their conscience long enough. Eventually it becomes dulled. It becomes retrained to the new standard that we set ourselves up with which leads to eventually killing the conscience that we should have. God's word guides a good conscience. The blood of Jesus cleanses that conscience. And so we need to understand that, that our love has to come from that. We see in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14, it says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifying our consciences from dead works to worship the living God? This is a gift that God gives to us. And so our love has to flow from that. We're not called to love because we're driven by guilt and by shame. Does that make sense? We are called to love because we have this good conscience because we know we're doing what's right before God and we're doing what's right before other people. Now, the flip side of that is if you're doing stuff, let's say you're, I don't know, you're given to your local animal shelter because you feel guilty. Um, um, you, You are doing good but not for the right reason. <clears throat> Does that make sense? Uh, one time I told you one of my churches, somebody donated an organ, a, pipe, a beautiful organ. But they, then they said, hey, I want to have a recognition day. I'm like, that was just really odd. We were going to do it, but to ask? We, the gift was a blessing to us for as long as we had somebody to play it. But I have to wonder what kind of a blessing was it for the one who gave, who demanded recognition for it? I don't know. But as a Christian, my love can't flow from I just feel guilty, I just feel guilty, I just, because that is exhausting, that is tiring, and it's very empty and unfulfilling. You ever experienced that? You ever love something from an unpure conscience? Well, we can't do that. Let's look at verse 5 again. <clears throat> but the aim of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart 
a good conscience and a sincere faith. So the other grounding of our love has to come from a sincere faith. A sincere faith is one that is real and true. It is literally a faith without hypocrisy. Now, it's not necessarily a faith that's perfect. It's not necessarily a faith that doesn't stumble. It's not necessarily a faith that struggles. There's a difference between those things and being a hypocrite. Does it make sense? Because a hypocrite is somebody who is just pretending. Because you're struggling in your faith does not, the world will call you a hypocrite. You're not a hypocrite when you're struggling. The key is when you're not struggling and you're doing what you're doing. That's a hypocrite. When you are doing what you're doing and you just don't care, you know you shouldn't do it, it doesn't bother you, it doesn't prick your conscience, and then you live one way on one day and then you come into church on Sunday and live another. A sincere faith is one that needs no mask to hide its inconsistency or its insincerity because inconsistency and insincerity are not a part of that faith. People with a sincere faith don't need to put on their game face when they come to church to hang out with other Christians. It's just another day in the neighborhood, another day praising Jesus and worshiping together. But it's coming from a sincere faith. One of the, thing, one of the big things that drew me to Jesus, in my background, the church that I was raised in, I saw a lot of, I'll do whatever I want all week, I'll repent on Sunday and do it again on Monday. I saw this, you know, all kinds of stuff. I won't go into, I just saw a lot of stuff and it turned me off. But when I started dating my, dating my wife and I started hanging out with her friends and they were not perfect, but boy, I tell you what, they were the same on Saturday as they were on Sunday. They weren't out carousing and doing all this, all, all this other stuff. They, for the first time in my life, even though they had struggles and some of them have had some real struggles, they had a sincere faith that I saw. And that impressed me because it was confusing at first. I said, wait a minute, this isn't real. So I'd hang out with them the next time. I'm just waiting. I literally am. I've never really said this thing, Robin, about this, but I was waiting for the real people to show up, not these Christians, you know, because I'd seen Christians on Sundays before, and then I've seen whatever on Monday. But the more I spent time with them, it just impressed me. And they didn't, they weren't preaching at me. Sometimes I was the butt of their jokes occasionally. You know, I have a little bit colorful past. But their example, they were witnessing to me and they didn't even know it. And see, we can do this with people. I'm not saying we shouldn't ever tell people about Jesus because we should. But if you're uncomfortable with that, witness in the way you live, in the way you love, because it will change people. It took me from somebody who I was to who I am today. I wouldn't be here this way without that. King David had a great faith, but we would all agree that he was a very flawed individual. But when David realized he stepped out of line with God, what did he do? He repented and got back on track. David didn't gloss over the issue. He did not make up excuses. He didn't say, well, you know what? I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to deal with God later. He did some things he shouldn't have. He knew he shouldn't have done them, and he did them because he was a flawed person. But he repented, and he cleaned up the problem, and he got his act together. A sincere faith springs forth from trusting God. And if you trust God, you, you know you don't have to put on a show. I was talking to somebody recently about a situation. I said, do you trust God? Do you trust God? Yeah, but, I'm like, no, do you trust God? Yeah, but no, do you trust God, see? The but goes away in that case. You either trust God or you don't. Well, these circumstances, doesn't matter, do you trust God? God orchestrated these circumstances that needed to be orchestrated. You have trying to, been trying to thwart that for good reasons, I understand that, but ultimately, we have to trust God. Too often, we don't trust that God will help us or that he's powerful enough to change anything. A sincere faith is needed if real love's going to happen. A faith that trusts God enough is a faith that will love the way God commands. Well, you don't understand. I'm not getting anything back. You don't understand this and this and this. No, I don't, but God does. And he tells me that I'm to love. My love is to come from a pure heart. 
a sincere faith, and it's to come from all these things in that verse. That's what we're told. Let's look at verse 7, and 6 and 7, sorry about that. And here's, he finishes, he says, some have strayed away from these things, speaking of verse 5, and turned away to empty discussion. They wanted to be teachers of the law, but they do not understand what they're saying or things they insist on so confidently. So this is kind of a result of what happens with love without aim. When we miss the goal or miss the mark, we're going to hit something. I used to shoot bow and arrow quite a bit, and I had a pretty good-sized yard when, when my wife and I got, first got married, and I set my targets up in that yard, and I'd aim for them, and the only problem was if I missed, I was going to hit a neighbor's house. And so it was important that I had a steady aim, and I used the trigger releases and stuff, so I tried to eliminate all the variables that I could. I would never shoot a bow without a trigger release. But what I aimed for is what I hit, okay? If I didn't aim... I was going to hit something, but more than likely not what I wanted to hit. And so when we look at our love and we don't have that, when we don't have what verse 5 tells us we're supposed to have in that goal, uh, what ends up happening is when we don't have that pure heart, that good conscience, and that sincere faith, what ends up happening is we're going to hit something, but not what we need to hit and what we want to hit. Our faith and teachings aim, the goal of them, is not to lead empty discussions, but rather life-changing and life-enhancing experiences. We're not just trying to get into empty theological debates, and believe me, I'm, I'm all for theological issues and debates, but if that's what it's about, we've missed the mark, because we are trying to bring people to the throne of Jesus Christ, the throne of the room of God. We are trying to give them a life-changing experience, a life-enhancing experience, through the word of God, not just part a bunch of knowledge to them. Verse five said some of, excuse me, verse seven said some have strayed away from this beautiful message of verse five. The word stray, by the way, means to miss the mark or go, be, or go beyond the goal. In other words, to overshoot the goal. And so even in that language, he says, these people are, they're not aiming in the right place. False teachers have missed the mark set for them by the pure heart, the sincere faith, and the, and, and the good conscience. If we don't have those things, we're not aiming in the right place. And so what these people do, and what they did is instead they focused on empty discussions and they made a field day of it. Empty discussions is technically a single word in the original text, which literally meant empty or useless discourse. <clears throat> How many times have we gotten into empty and useless discourse? And all that talk, where does it lead? Doesn't lead to the throne of Christ. It leads to empty and to nowhere. It may draw some followers, but it doesn't produce a godly life. You know, there's certain things that we could teach that maybe would just fill the building. But will those things that we're teaching produce a godly life? You know, I've been around some ministries, and, and I, I hate to pick on them, but they just focus in on certain, they just have one focus. They'll focus on revelation, or they'll focus on something else. They'll focus on spiritual gifts, okay? But the problem with that is, is what is the aim what is your end goal? Is it to change lives and to enhance people's lives and bring them to the throne room of God? Or is it to get them hooked on some theological discussion or non-theological, actually? That's what we need to realize. The false teachers at that time, wanted, they, were, they were wanted to be known as teachers of the law. But the problem is they didn't know what they were talking about. And what you find a lot of times is when people get into these empty discussions, if you find yourself leading empty discussions, honestly, you probably don't know what you're talking about because you're missing the mark. You may have some technical words correct, but what you're teaching is missing the mark. And if I'm just trying to win an argument, I'm missing the mark because that's not the goal of our instruction. Our, our, excuse me, our, our teaching aim, the aim of our teaching is to build love. It's to spring forth from love, but it's also to build love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. When we teach, we are seeking transformation, we are seeking growth, and we are seeking change. We seek to help people more, to be more Christ-like, not just to impart knowledge strictly for educational purposes. When we can help people grow, we will reach more people for Jesus and we will help them to grow in their love because ultimately the Bible tells us that what is God? He's love. 
what is Jesus? He's God. So therefore, Jesus is love also. So therefore, if I'm a follower of Jesus, then I also have to be a person grounded in love. As a Christian, I can't have malice and hatred because my Lord and Savior didn't. And that's my growth process to make sure that my love is from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. When we help people grow, we're trying to reach more people for Christ because we're seeking to raise a new generation of Christians, not a generation of Christian Pharisees. This morning, our praise team is going to come up and lead us in a song of decision. And if you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we invite you to come forward this morning. You know, part of what we're trying to impart whenever we preach and teach is we're trying to help bring transformation to get you to think about your life, to get you to think about your eternal life. And, you know, if it were simply, to be honest with you, simple sermons to write or doctrinal sermons are so easy to write. When I was early in my ministry, I could write up some very technical, really good stuff. And then my wife one day, I gave, I'll never forget, I gave her a sermon. I can't remember what one it was, and I gave it to her, and she looked at it, and she said, well, so what? And she wasn't being mean, but her point was, okay, you're, it's, a, it's got all, it's technically, it's got all, but, but so what? What difference is it going to make? And that really rocked my world in a good way. And it made me realize, later on people said, you preach pretty simply. And I don't take that as an insult. Because if you understand what you're teaching, you can break it down simply. But we're here to help transform lives. To help transform and change your life. And I hope you're here this morning to have your life transformed and to grow, and to change, and to grow in these areas. But the bottom line this morning is, if Jesus isn't your Lord and Savior, he needs to be. And if you're not ready for that today, I hope at least your mind is open to thinking about this, because this is important. It will affect you and people around you for eternity. You know, I've had a circle of people around me my whole Christian life, my adult life, since I was 20, that thankfully the Lord has been able to use me to impact. And I think sometimes, what if I'd have never met my wife? What if I'd have never decided to go to church with her on the invite? Where would I be today? And where would those other people, more importantly, be that I've been able to impact through God's word? So it, it makes a difference. You want to make a difference in people's lives? First, let Jesus make a difference in yours, and then you let him make that difference through you. If Jesus isn't your Lord and Savior this morning, we invite you to come forward this morning. If you're an immersed believer and would like to make First Christian your home, we'd love to have you come forward this morning. And if you're struggling and you need some prayer, if you come forward, I'd be glad to pray with you or one of our elders would. But this time, we're going to stand together and sing our song of decision. If you have a decision, we invite you to come forward this morning.
some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. With these words, these Greeks approached Philip to express a desire in their heart and a determination to fulfill that desire. In this case, they wanted to physically see this Jesus that they'd been hearing about. They were wondering about him. They wanted to see him. They knew a little about him, or they wouldn't have traveled as far as they had and taken the time out of their busy day to look for him. But they wanted to know more. They wanted to get to know him more than they already did. That should be the highest desire of all Christians. Where do we look that we might see him? And what do we look for as we try to see him? We come to the church service and we look for him in the sermon that's been preached. We can listen to the songs that are sung about him. Hopefully we can get a glimpse of him in the lives of those <clears throat> that have gathered together to worship. And certainly we can look within the pages of the New Testament, especially Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to see him. <clears throat> All of these opportunities will give us a little insight into who he is and what he is. But I believe, I truly believe, that the best place to see Jesus is in the communion time. We come to the table of remembrance. For here, as in no other place, can we really and truly see Jesus and come to know him better for here we see his love, his sacrificial nature, who and what he really is. Here we see that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Here we see him laying down his life as a ransom for many. Here we see him suffering in pain and agony on that cruel cross. Here we see how far he will go to provide for those whom he loves. That is you and me. Sir, we would see Jesus. Then come to the table and truly see him.
for what he is and who he is. Jesus only let me see. Jesus only, none save he. Then my song shall ever be Jesus, Jesus only. Father in heaven, we come to this table to see Jesus, to be reminded of who he really is and what he really is and what he has done for each of us as he gave his life sacrificially on that cruel cross of Calvary so many years ago. We don't see him physically, of course, but we see him for who he is. Help us to truly see him today. In Jesus' name. On the inside of your bulletin, we have announcements. We want to remind you that Singspiration will take place on the 30th at 5 p.m. here, and we have more information in the bulletin on that. Uh, we have an elder preacher meeting today at 3.30, so if you're in that group, make sure you're here. Jerry is out of town this week. He is in Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe Aaron got him on the plane again. But, um, but anyway, uh, be in uh, prayer for them. But... Um, there will be no uh, elementary or high school group meetings tonight. Rogers Group's meeting this evening. The LOL group meets this week. We have our leadership team meeting on Tuesday. And the spa uh, lunch and fellowship will be hosted by Julie Reichard. And that's going, there's information on the back table. That takes place on Saturday at 11. Operation Christmas Child's looking for donations. Um, we are, our narrow path group is going to meet on the 22nd. It's going to be a cookout. Uh, we've got the, the material to do, the, or we've got the thing to cook in, so sign up to bring some things if you can. We've got Sisters of Love's looking for participants. And Jan Lang is looking for some um, empty rectangular Kleenex boxes and things for kids' way, so if you can have those, talk to Jan about that. I think that's all the announcements that we have in the bulletin today. On the inside of your bulletin, we have prayer concerns and prayers of celebration. Um, Show Me Youth Home is one of the organizations we send funds to from one of the Sunday school classes. And they said, bless you for blessing these kids. I pray that you know your contribution makes a direct impact on these awesome children. And thank you for investing in the kingdom work. And that came from Show Me Christian Youth Home. So we're glad to help them. We have a lot of things we're praying for about around the world. We have people that have health concerns that we're continuing to lift up. We have military folks who are, uh, who are deployed that we want to continue to lift up in prayer. We have our shut-in list that we continue to uh, keep contact with as best we can. And we're also we're praying for our outreach um, this month, which is Operation Christmas Child. And we're also praying for um, our mission this month, which for some reason it got cut off. But anyway, um, those are all in your bulletin. So we ask you to take those bulletins home.
and that you um, be in prayer for people. So at this time, let's stand together. I'll lead us in a time of silent prayer, and then I'll close with a prayer, and our praise team will lead, will lead us with a song. Go ahead and slip, go with the next slide. There we go. Next one. Perfect. All right. Let's uh, let's go together to get to go together to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be together today. And Father, I know that you, you've heard all the prayers lifted up for all the folks that we've been praying for. I pray that we continue to keep them lifted up to you throughout the week. And Father, I pray that as we leave this place today, we leave, so, we leave here with a joyful heart, just ready to serve and ready to help change people for you, for you and for them. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.